So why do you stand there staring? There's a principle in art. I don't know much about it because I'm not an artist. I'm the farthest thing that anybody could ever imagine from being an artist. But there's a principle in art called a vanishing point. Y'all have probably seen this on PBS or something like that. Do you know the painting that I'm thinking about? There's a painting, it's a medieval painting, maybe it's a Renaissance painting of uh, hunters going into the wood chasing a heart, a deer. You don't, I, I don't think you see the deer, maybe you do. <clears throat> but everything converges on an imaginary vanishing point. You don't see the vanishing point, but it's there. It almost makes the picture three-dimensional. You know what we're talking about? That is like that picture. There's a vanishing point on that picture. Where is it? Well, you can't see the vanishing point. That's the point. But where is it? It's the other side of the cross. Which cross? The center cross. And it points where? Up. You ever thought about that when you see the three crosses together? There's a vanishing point beyond that. Um, you know, in um, September of 1620, here's another historical example, okay? On the 6th of September in 1620, uh, a ship set sail from Plymouth, England, southwestern part of England, and it headed out across the Atlantic. It wasn't the first time that that ship had tried to make the crossing. It had, to, it had gone before and had to turn back and all, but then it finally then makes it to America. But as some of those folks stood there in the harbor at Plymouth and they watched that ship head to the west, it took five hours for it to disappear over the horizon. Folks, you can fly over the Atlantic today in less than five hours, okay? But what was happening? That ship started, it looked like bigger than the size of this room, and then half the size of this room, and then a quarter, and then a tenth, and it got what, smaller, and smaller, and smaller, and eventually it did what? It vanished. When something vanishes, does it mean that it's not there? No. You just can't what? Can't see it anymore. Now, my personal favorite example of that was, I think that it was probably uh, Christmas of 1983. My memory isn't what it should be about these sorts of things. But it was about 40 years ago. Jennifer was about a year, almost two years old. And... She had never been to America. And so I took, I took Beverly and Jennifer. We went to Gatwick Airport, not to Heathrow. They got aboard. I don't know. Do you remember if it was a American Delta? Probably Delta back then. Got on a Delta aircraft. And uh, I stood. And, and in that day, what you could do is you could actually go through the terminal. You could go through to the check gate, even if you weren't a passenger. Do you remember those days? Ancient days of old, <laughs> pre-Obama, 
Thank you, Obama. Uh, uh, Osama, not Obama, Osama bin Laden, yeah. I got, my, I got my consonants mixed up. And so then I stood there before this big plate glass window, and I saw the aircraft taxi down, taxi back, take its position, and take off. Pretty good size. And then it got smaller and smaller. What do you think I was doing at that time? Yeah, I, I was. I was crying. I was watching, but what else was I doing? What? I was, I was crying, and I was waving, and I was watching. What else was I doing? I was praying. And then all of a sudden, that tiny little dot on the horizon did what? It disappeared, vanished. Were my wife and daughter still there? Yes, but could I see them? No. The vanishing point. That's what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about the vanishing point of Christ. So the event is in Acts, the first chapter. There are two events that occur back to back, and Jesus is talking. He's finishing the Great Commission from Luke here. Remember at the end of Luke, he said that you're supposed to stay in Jerusalem and that power will come upon you. And then he picks up the story at the beginning of Acts, the second part of the gospel. In verse number six, if you'd read with me. So when they had come together, they were asking him, that is Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs, that is, seasons, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. There's the first event. That's the Great Commission. That's Luke's Great Commission. Verse number 9, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently, as they were staring, as they were gawking (laughs) into heaven while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside him, They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Why do you stand gazing into heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Here we come in the scarlet thread to the moment of the vanishing point. It's kind of the opposite of what we celebrate at Christmas. At Christmas in Luke, the second chapter, it's the incarnational point. It's the coming point. It is the embodiment of the Son of God who becomes the Son of Man. And now we see what? Both the Son of God and the Son of Man and the same person doing what? Let's don't say disappear. Okay? I would say he vanishes. The parallel text is found in Luke, the 24th chapter. If you want to turn there, it's just three verses, four verses. By the time you get there, I will finish probably, but I'll give you a moment. Luke 24, verses 50 through 53. And it gives some, a little more information here, okay? And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands, and he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy 
and were continually in the temple praising God. So this is another account of the ascension. Actually, two Lucan accounts, aren't there? So the, these two are the full accounts, okay? Luke gives us both of them. There are a couple of other references to the ascension uh, in Scripture, but they're the only ones that I can find that are explicit. One is found in Mark, the 16th chapter. It's a very abbreviated account of the ascension. You know, right at the very end in, in, the, at the, last, in the last chapter of Mark, in verse 19, it simply says, The Lord was received into heaven, but it gives us another important fact. What's the other important fact in Mark, the 16th chapter, verse number 19? And he sat at the right hand of God. That's interesting. I remember uh, one of our members who's passed on now one day, I was talking about the fact that, <clears throat> that he stood at the right hand of God. Did he stand or sit? And the answer is yes. Because the account... In Acts, Acts Gospel, in Acts is by Stephen, and he looks and he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, and here he's sitting. I think sometimes he sits down, sometimes he stands, that's okay, you know. But this person, wait, 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 no, 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 he's not standing, he's sitting. Well, it comes from this passage in Mark, okay? And then John, the 20th chapter, uh, Jesus says to Mary, you know, back off, lady, Basically, unhug me. Why? I have not ascended. I have not yet ascended to where? To the Father. So it gives us even a little more information there. It's not just that he has gone to heaven, and it's not just that he's the right hand of God. He is with whom? His who? His Father. Okay. The Old Testament parallel to this, imagine, imagine. What am I going to mention next? What's the Old Testament parallel to this? It's not exactly, but it's a parallel event. What? Not Daniel. And Daniel talks about the Son of Man coming. What? Elijah. Elijah. And who's standing there on the ground? Elisha. And in 2 Kings, the second chapter, it says, And they, that is Elijah and Elisha, were going along and talking. I love the way he puts that. You know, they're just kind of walking along, sort of like Jesus was with the two on the road to Emmaus. And behold, there, was, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up with a whirlwind to heaven. Elisha saw it and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw Elijah no more. Vanishing point into heaven. So when is this happening? It's 40 days after Easter, Acts 1-3. So it's 10 days before what? What's about to happen? There are two signs we talked about last week. There are two signs that validate the message that gave them at the Great Commission. I am with you always, okay? And I am going to endow you, imbue you with power, okay? Which we read about now. And there are two signs that confirm that. One is the ascension. And we'll see why it validates, I'm with you always. <laughs> and the other is what we're going to talk about week after next, after Labor Day. And Josh is going to preach on this, and that is what? Wind and fire. And that confirms the second of these. And that is, of course, the pouring out of his spirit.
10 days later. So Ascension Day was a Thursday, five weeks and five days after Easter. That's the liturgical part of it. So that many liturgical traditions will celebrate Ascension Day. We, we don't typically do that. We celebrate Christmas and Easter and maybe, maybe Pentecost. But Ascension Day is in the calendar. And it's affirmed liturgically uh, in connection with Easter. It's also affirmed liturgically. We did it this morning. What's almost always, I don't always do this, but almost always, after we drink the cup, then we quote from what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11th chapter. And it says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you celebrate the death of our Lord until he what? Comes again. Well, what does that have to do with the ascension? We'll see in just a moment. Okay. He, in order to come again, he has to what? Have gone before. Okay. Jesus' body and presence, what do we know about it at this event? Well, first of all, we know that it's physical. Why? Because he appears to them behind closed doors, and they're very fearful, and he does what? He eats with them. He lets them touch him. He has a physical body. It is different than our physical body, I'm convinced, because he appears behind the closed door. He doesn't unlock it. He doesn't knock. He just appears on the other side, but it's physical. He eats with them by the Sea of Galilee, so he has a physical body. But it's also a superhuman body. There's something miraculous about it. He is capable of being boom, boom in different places instantly. He's on the road to Emmaus, and the next thing you know in Luke is he's there with the disciples. Now, he could have walked there, and maybe he did, but it's almost immediate. And we do know this. He then appears on the other side of the door. So it's a superhuman physical body that materializes and can vanish. Mm. And their widespread appearances. We're told in the gospel that he appeared in many places and he did many, many miracles before he then ascended. So that's the kind of body that we're talking about coming back. A physical body, the physical, the imminent, expectant, almost immediate, instant return of the bodily Jesus Christ, who is superhuman in his capabilities, miraculous in its power, can appear anytime, anywhere he wishes. The other part of it is he also has a spiritual presence that is beyond the body, and we can't explain that, but he is here with us tonight. Geographically, where is this? Well, we wouldn't know this if we didn't read from uh, Luke's account in Luke 23. Where is Bethany? Mount of Olives. Just on the other side of the Mount of Olives, just on the crest, East of Jerusalem, opposite the Kidron Valley, about 200 feet above Jerusalem, looking out over Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives, where we're talking about here, is about a Sabbath day's journey. We know that. It's about six-tenths of a mile. And Bethany, when you look at John 11, John 11, we know about Bethany because that's where Mary and Martha lived, and that's where Lazarus was. And John 11 is Jesus raising Lazarus. And there we see that it was 15 stadia, or furlongs. It was about 1.7 miles. So somewhere between about half a mile and a mile and a half out there, he's on the uh, side of the Mount of Olives. And we see where this is in history. Even though it's millennia after God has created the earth, it really is pretty much to the central place in human history. Because the very center point of human history, maybe not chronologically, but the center point of human history we know is the resurrection. And this is right after it. So we have the creation, and the next big event is what? The incarnation, 
and the next big event is the crucifixion, the next big event is the resurrection in the scarlet thread. Then we have the ascension, which is the glorification. And there's one more big event that's going to happen in the scarlet thread, and that is what? The parousia, his return. And he makes three promises here in Acts, the first chapter. One is past, one is present, one is future. Okay? One is already, uh, in, in, well, in Acts, in the beginning of Acts, he already has said that he is going to send his Holy Spirit. He said that in the past. These men say that, you, he says to them that they are going to be witnesses of this in the present. And in the future, then, these three men, uh, these two men say that he is going to return. So there are three promises, past, present, and future. So he's homeward bound. Homeward bound. I like that. You know, when you read the account of the uh, uh, transfiguration in Matthew and Mark, you don't see this. Well, we do see this in all the accounts. Who was there with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration? Beside the inner circle of disciples. Moses and Elijah. What were they talking about? Matthew doesn't tell us. Mark doesn't tell us, but Luke tells us. Hmm. What were they talking about? Well, Luke 9, 30 through 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. And in this respect, Luke doesn't, dis- doesn't reveal identities here. We know who they were. Oh, no, I'm sorry, he does. He says in the next phrase. And they were Moses and Elijah, okay, who were appearing in glory. So they were enshrouded by the Shekinah glory of God. And they were speaking of his departure, which was about to be accomplished in Jerusalem. So they were talking. Isn't that an intimate picture? They're on, the, they're on the mountain with Jesus, and they're talking to him about what? Going home. I love that song, going home, going home. Why did Jesus go to Jerusalem? Hmm. The goal is found in uh, verse number 51 of chapter 9 in Luke. And you've heard me preach on this before. It's after he has challenged them about following him and being his disciples. He has told them that he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer, he's going to be killed, and he's going to be raised the third day. And after he's told them about all this suffering that he is going to go through, then he says to them in verse number 23, so if you're going to follow me, you need to do what? You need to die to self. You need to take up your cross and follow me. I'm going to suffer. You need to be willing to do what? Suffer as well. And there is his call to hard discipleship. And then 28 verses later, in verse number 51, it's, it's just before they go into Samaria. You remember that story? They're about to go into Samaria, and they're not well received, and James and John want to call down fire from heaven, and Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I didn't come to destroy. I came to save. In between his hard call in that event, then it says this. It says, when the days were approaching for his ascension. It's not talking about his crucifixion and resurrection, although that's going to happen. When his days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined. And the word picture that you get there is he turned. He turned his face like flint. He turned his face like rock. He turned his face immobilely fixed on his goal, and that was to get to Jerusalem, to go to Jerusalem. Why? Well, embedded in that is his ultimate purpose. 
His ultimate purpose was, yes, to be crucified, yes, to be resurrected, yes, to continue to minister afterward, yes, to commission his disciples, but it's not over until he does what? He goes home. Hmm. You see, he foretold the disciples about this in John, the 14th chapter. You believe in God, you believe also in me. And I do what? I go... He doesn't say where, right there. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. So he's going to the Father's house, and you put these things together in Luke 9 then and John 14, and we understand what's happening. He is about to return home, and he has more things to do up there. Okay? And then there is the joy that is beyond it all. Hebrews tells us, you know, after the roll call of faith, and the author of Hebrews tells us that we need to be diligent in running the race. We're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses. And then he says what? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. He's the what of our faith? The beginner and the finisher, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who, for what reason? For the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame what is the joy that is set before him yes being resurrected yes redeeming all of humankind but Jesus is excited he is joyful because what it says in the last part and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and there's another passage where he's sitting down okay so this is about Folks, going home. It's about the Son of God who has become the Son of Man, who returns as both the Son of God and Son of Man, who returns to His Father to be in His Father's house. There is a heavenly assumption, and it occurs in three stages in this passage. First of all, it's visible. He's lifted up. The word there means exalted, but literally, He is not just exalted in the sense that we, we praise Him and we honor Him. He is actually lifted up. Epiro is the verb. He is raised up. He was lifted up while they were looking on in verse number 9. So that's the physical lifting up. And then there's an invisible portion. There is the vanishing point. He is received. That means that he's taken into. A cloud received him out of their sight. So now he becomes invisible. He is beyond the vanishing point. And that's important because the word that is used there Hupalambano means to be taken from under, to receive from under. So the cloud receives him from under. And a parallel word is used by Jesus then when he talks about the Holy Spirit. He's received up. And what's going to happen and what cannot happen, he tells them in John's gospel, what cannot happen until he goes? You cannot, what? Receive the Holy Spirit. So there is a receiving into the cloud. He vanishes, and once he has done that, then the disciples can receive for themselves the presence of the Holy Spirit. So, and both of those are invisible events. I mean, we, you don't see the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. You see manifestations of it, and they are what, Josh? What are the two things you're going to preach on? Wind and fire. <laughs> 
Do you see the wind? No. They saw flaming tongues of fire. But that wasn't the Holy Spirit himself. That was a manifestation of it. Okay. So, so that's the invisible part. And then you put this all together. The process is both visible and invisible. Then this Jesus, they say in verse number 11, who has been taken up from you into heaven. So you see the three stages. Visibly, he was lifted up. Invisibly, he was received. And then that invisible, vanished Jesus is taken into heaven. You see, he didn't just vanish. Not in this sense. Uh, there's a vanishing point, but it's not a magic trick, I guess. Uh, have have you all ever watched uh, any of the Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit? I can't remember which, movie, which one it is. Uh, it, it may be the beginning of the trilogy. Uh, Bilbo Baggins has a nephew. Is it a nephew? Is Frodo his nephew? And if you haven't read this and if you're bored, just stick with me a moment. Bilbo has a, 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 a birthday party. It's his 111st birthday party. What's 111st? He's 111 years old. And you know he's got this magic ring that most folks, except Gandalf, do not know about. And, and Bilbo. And what happens when he puts the ring on? <laughs> he vanishes. He vanishes. And so it's right in the middle of this big party for his 111st birthday. And man, he's going to milk it for all it's worth. And he puts this ring, and everybody's looking at him, and he puts this ring on it. He vanishes. Folks, that's a party trick, okay? This isn't about a golden ring. It's not about Mordor. It's not about some magic, okay? No. It's not that kind of vanishing. It's not an illusion. Jesus is still there, physically, bodily. You see, instead, the cloud received him, and the significance is, you know, he's not somehow a, an ephemeral mist floating around out there. No. He, he didn't deatomize, if you will, and is going to rematerialize. He, he hasn't become one with the universe. This is not about pantheism, God and everything. No, he still has a physical body that is superhuman, that has a presence, and he is somewhere. The cloud is representative, that language, and the physical cloud is representative of what? What do you think? It's not just a fluffy white cloud like we had. To, we didn't have fluffy white clouds. We had a dark sky, but you know what I'm talking about. It's not just a fluffy white cloud. Israel is going through the desert, and they are guided in the desert by a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, and that is the manifestation of the presence, the Shekinah presence of Jehovah God Almighty. I think that's what's happening here. He is being received by the Father. It says in, in the Psalms, in Psalm 97, clouds of darkness... That's an interesting kind of illusion. Clouds of darkness surround him. Psalm 104 in Isaiah 19 speaks that about God Almighty rides upon the clouds. And we're told Jesus then is forecast. Somebody mentioned Daniel a moment ago, and I think this is what you were talking about. It says that he will then come on the clouds of heaven, and then when Jesus stands before the high priest, and he asks, are you really the one? Are you really the expected one? He said, you better believe it. 
I am that. <laughs> I am the physical manifestation on earth of Jehovah God Almighty. And you know what's going to happen? Someday the Son of Man you will see returning on clouds with great power and great glory. And he has told his disciples the same thing. You see, it is that kind of cloud. It is the manifestation of the presence of God Almighty that receives him into his presence. So where is he? Certainly. Where is he today? This physical and superhuman, miraculous Son of God, Son of Man. Where is he? Well, the generic term we use is what? Heaven. Heaven. The apostles were gazing where? What does it say? Into heaven. The question comes from the men, why are you gazing into where? Heaven. He was taken up from them where? Into heaven. And he will return from where he went, heaven, again, the same way he came. There's a full, full, fourfold repetition here of where he is. If we have any question about where he is today, he is in heaven. The further validation of this is, and we spoke about this this morning, Stephen, Stephen prays for his persecutors. That was the point this morning. But then, just before he dies, he looks up and he has this vision of the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In heaven. What's the meaning? He is at home. He is at home with God, his heavenly Father. And it's clarified by Mark in Mark, the 16th chapter, when we just read a moment ago. He is at the right hand of God. Precisely where is he? We know precisely where he is at this very moment. Well, he's in heaven. But precisely where is he? Well, he's at the right hand of, of God. Precisely where are they? Hebrews 9, 24. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. He didn't enter the holy of holies. That's a mere copy. It's a mere shadow of things to come, the reality. It's a copy of the true one. He didn't enter into the holy of holies in the temple. Oh, and oh, by the way, what's happened to the temple curtain? There, probably about this time, the priests have sent out the curtain to be repaired because it was what? It was torn asunder at the crucifixion. He's not going to go in there. He has no use for the place where the high priest goes in once a year to make atonement because he is the atonement. He is the sacrifice. And folks, it wasn't just on the cross. He takes that sacrifice with him and he takes it into the eternal holy of holies in heaven into the holiest place, the real holy place, it says in Hebrews 9. But into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. He is there in heaven, in the holy of holies, with God the Father continually doing things for us. One thing is he has made the sacrifice once for all. You see, the sacrifice was not enough on this earth. He took that sacrifice and he presented it on the holy, heavenly altar. And then he does what? He makes intercession for us. That's where he is. There's an apostolic witness about this. They witnessed it with their own eyes. And not just once as it mentioned. But there are five references to the apostles witnessing this. He says to his, his disciples, he said, you're going to stay in Jerusalem, and then you're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, and then you are going to be my martyrs. You're going to be my martyros. You're going to be my what? What's the word? You're going to be my what? Witnesses. Martyroi. 
in Jerusalem and then Judea, then all Samaria, and then to the uttermost, to the remotest parts. This is the office of the disciples that they fulfill in the apostles. And it's the office that you and I fulfill as we, fulfill, as we accomplish the Great Commission. Witnesses. Now these apostles, then they're witnesses. They saw Jesus as he spoke in this passage. First witness. Second witness. He was taken up out of their what? Sight. A third witness. They gazed intently. Third witness. Fourth witness. They stood looking on. And then the fifth witness. They had observed him going into heaven. Five times it says that they physically saw this. This is going to be their job. This is going to be their task. This is going to be what they do to fulfill their great commission. Yeah, they're going to speak about the gospel. They're going to share about his death, burial, and resurrection. But the point is, they were what? Eyewitnesses. That's what made it so powerful. So when John raises the man, uh, uh, Peter and John raised the man there in Jerusalem. They then stand before the Sanhedrin and they say that we were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. The apostles do this. And they're sharing this all over Jerusalem. And that's why the Sanhedrin is just absolutely dumbstruck. And they want them to be dumbstruck. They want them to shut up. It's not just a theological treatise they're sharing. They're doing what? They are giving eyewitness testimony. They were eyewitnesses in every way. This completes their threefold witness. They had seen Jesus crucified and resurrected. So it was verified a past historical fact. He was killed. He was raised from the dead. They were seeing Jesus now being glorified and ascending, verifying the current reality that he is still alive. And they were hearing from the angelic witness that what? There is a future truth that you can bear witness to. He's going to do what? He's going to come back. So what's the heavenly message, message that comes? Why do I say heavenly message? It says that there were two men there outside Jerusalem. We know it was near Bethany. But we know who those two men were. We don't know them by name. We don't know if it was Michael and Gabriel. We don't know who they were. But we know they were what? Angels. They had to be angels. You know? um, when it, in Luke, the uh, 24th chapter... It speaks of men being in dazzling clothes at the tomb. Well, what were those? Those were angels. Uh, John 20 identifies the two men at the tomb as angels. So I can't be sure about this, but probably the same two. But even if it weren't the same, even if they were not the same two, almost certainly then what the illusion here is that this, these are angels. They have a message from heaven. They have a message from the throne of God, and they are sharing it with the apostles. Why do you stand gazing, intensely straining and looking? There's a continuous imperfect verb here. It's not that why do you look? Not just why do you continue to look, but why do you continue looking, gazing? Why do you stay fixated on that vanishing spot? It's similar to the words that were spoken in Luke 24. The two angels at the tomb. When they come to the tomb, <laughs> and they say, well, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. Why do you keep looking for? And that's what they're doing. The reason for this question, some would say, Well, it's a mild rebuke. You know, don't just stand there... Uh, go on out and tell the story. 
Okay. Is that what's happening here? Uh, you know, Ananias, uh, after Saul's conversion, there's something that Saul needs to do. What does he need to do? He needs to go back to Jerusalem and no. He needs to what? He needs to go on into Damascus and be what? Baptized. And so Ananias looks on him and he says to him, why do you delay? Get with it. Is this possibly what they're saying? Get with the task of witnessing. Go on and get out there. The problem with that, folks, I don't think this is a call to action because what has not happened yet? The Holy Spirit has not come upon them. They must still wait in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes upon them and empowers them. So I don't think it's a rebuke. Some could say that it's a correction of direction to get their attention. Uh, don't, don't look there. <laughs> look what? Look here. Listen to us now. Okay, he's gone. Now, listen intently to what we're saying. I, I think it's probably neither of those. More probably, I think it's simply a rhetorical question. You know, why are you doing that? Uh, don't be discouraged. I mean, you see, can you imagine the excitement that you might feel watching the Lord ascend if you were in, in, in Peter's sandals <laughs> or James's sandals? Can you imagine that? But, but there's a bittersweet part to this. He's gone. Now, he said he was going to do this, but just like when he told us that he was going to be crucified, dead, buried, and resurrected, we didn't know what that meant. When he said, There's going to go, I'm going to go to a place that you can't go just yet, I think he was talking about the cross. He may have been talking about heaven. Hmm. He did say, I'm going to leave you, and, and you're going to be sad. So they're, they're discouraged. He's not there with them anymore. I think it's a message of encouragement. A message of promise, joyful promise. On hearing the, mess the message, then, what happens? It's, it, it's pretty obvious, then. It worked. I think they are encouraged. They, they did three things. What does it say in, this, in, in Luke 24? It says they did first what? They worshipped him. They worshipped Jesus. Does that mean they don't have any doubts still? No, because we know in the Great Commission what happens. They come to the hill and they worship him, but some still doubt it. But they worshiped him. And then it said they went to Jerusalem to their appointed places of duty. Okay, and they waited. And they were filled with great joy. So I think the message works. The message is really a promise. This Jesus who was taken up before you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. So the promise is what? He will come. It's that simple. He will come. This is the source of their joy. Now, they, they probably are thinking, well, maybe tomorrow, maybe next week. Well, we know he hasn't come for 2,000 years. But folks, when we hear this message, we need to take it to heart. We need to have the same kind of joy that they had. They may have been expecting him to come before the next Sabbath. We need to be filled with that same kind of joy. And, you know, let's face it, we're not filled with doubt about his coming but most of us figure that we're probably going to die first and go there instead of watching him come. But folks, we need to be filled with that same kind of expectant joy that they were. You've heard me say it before, and you've said this probably to people before. He may come before I finish this sentence. Okay? We need to have that kind of expectant joy. He will come. How will he come? In just the same way. What does that mean? Bodily and visibly. 
We're going to see him coming on clouds with great glory, glorified on the clouds of heaven, as he predicted. Personally, it says here, this Jesus, it really means this very Jesus. The em- emphasis is on this very one, not another figurative person. You see, when John came, John was the who? He was the voice of one calling in the, in the wilderness. And that was a fulfillment of the prophecy in Isaiah. But then later, Malachi tells us that he is going to be the new what? John's going to be the new Elijah. So you see, he's a figurative representation of Elijah. No, that's not what's going to happen here. There's not going to come another figure like Jesus. The Father isn't going to send Gabriel or Michael or any of the other host of angels or archangels. He is going to send his son, Jesus Christ himself. Jesus is coming back. Where's the location going to be? Well, some are very literal about this. They think from Zechariah 14, 4, that it's going to be on the Mount of Olives. And, and it may be. It may be. I think he's simply saying he's going to come back to earth. Okay? But, but, but it may be right there. Okay? There's a certainty of this based on the apostolic witness that just as surely as they saw him ascend, he will return. Now, let me make two applications in closing. You know what that means. Okay? <laughs> There's still a little bit more left. But two closing implications. One has to do with Jesus' thereness, and the other has to do with the apostles' hereness. Okay? What about Jesus' thereness? This means nothing less than the enthronement of the Son of Man. What's happened? You know, in uh, Roman culture, there's what is called the apotheosis. And what that means is when an emperor died, the Senate then, if they had confirmation that they had seen him divinized in some kind of vision, then the Senate would vote that they were what? They were God, man-made God, a transition from being a mere human to a God. Hmm, that's not what's happening here, we know. For he was the son of God first, and then he became the son of man. And what's happened is he has taken his rightful place with a rightful power and the rightful identity that has always been his. Now, he who was incarnate, the son of man then, he is at the right place where he has always belonged, and that is where? The right hand of God the Father. With his rightful power, he has been royally invested. We know from Matthew 28, he begins the great commission by saying, all what? All power and authority has been given unto me where? In heaven and on earth. Then we know from uh, Ephesians, it says that he has been elevated so that he is over all powers and all authorities. He who is the head of the church is over all power and authority. And then we know in the Philippian hymn, then because he was obedient to death on the cross, the Father has given him a name that is above all names, that, it, that in the pronunciation of that name every knee will bow on heaven and earth and where else? Under the earth. So you see what's happened is he has been enthroned now officially. The Son of God who became the Son of Man is both now he is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And we're going to be looking at Colossians here in about another month and a half. In Colossians 1.16, one of the great passages there is the preeminent supreme Christ. For by him all things were created both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers our authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And you see, he assumes his rightful place over all of those then now, the thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities. 
So this is nothing less than the enthronement of the Son of God. The result is that they worshiped him. Luke only uses this word worship one other place in the gospel. Think about where it might be. Hmm. Go back to the temptation. Remember? And, and Satan tempts him, says, you know, look out there. Takes him to a high place. If you will bow down and what? Worship me, I will give you all of this. And Jesus says, it is written, you shall worship only the Lord your God and serve him. That is the Son of Man speaking. Now he is both the Son of Man and Son of God who is enthroned, and he assumes his rightful place of worship next to the Father. You see, he didn't do it prematurely. But now that the Father has enthroned him, we worship him. And he does what? His work is he's king, he's ruler at the right hand of God, he's priest, he makes the sacrifice, he's done that for all, and he makes intercession as priest. He is the architect. I go to do what? Prepare a place for you. Not just arrange things, to build a place for you in the Father's house. And he's the equipper. He's the one that sends the Holy Spirit along with his Father. So that's what the thereness of Jesus Christ is about. What about the hereness? About the apostles? What about us? This means succession, I think. And we have to be careful here because this is used in liturgical churches often to talk about apostolic succession, that there's some kind of authority that Peter had, and he passed that authority on supposedly the first bishop of Rome, which I don't think he was, <laughs> to the next bishop of Rome, the next bishop of Rome, and you've got apostolic succession that a power and authority and the keys of the kingdom have, have been given to the Pope. That's not what we're talking about here. But there is a succession here. Think about it for just a moment. There was a spiritual succession from Moses to Joshua. Moses is about to die, and, and God calls Joshua before the people with Moses. And then what does he do? He fills Joshua with the spirit of wisdom. And basically, he is commissioned then to lead the people of Israel with that spirit of wisdom. Think about that succession then of spiritual authority. Uh, think about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah says, what do you want uh, from me? I'm, I'm about to leave. What do you want from me? And what does Elisha ask for? A double portion of the spirit. And Elijah says, what? well, I can't promise that to you. But I tell you what, if the mantle falls upon me, from me upon the ground when I leave, then that's a sign that you get it. And guess what happened? That happened. So what you see here is a succession, a spiritual succession of, of authority to communicate the prophetic message. And it passes on from Elijah to Elisha. That is exactly what is happening to the apostles. You see, the Father has made Jesus his witness. When he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, and he was the Father's messenger and also his priest in sacrifice. And now what's happening is he, ascended, he ascends to heaven, and he's promised that I'm going to make you witnesses, and I'm going to do it by empowering you with the presence of the Holy Spirit. There's a succession that is happening here. And his ascension was a miraculous sign that, that this, this is accomplished, just as we said last week. When it talks about the power and authority being invested in him and then he's going to be with them, the two signs that confirm that are first the ascension and what's going to be coming in two weeks, then Pentecost. So what happens here? 
Elijah and Elisha. You see, Elisha stands on the shoulders of Elijah. He got a double portion of the Spirit. He did many more things than Elijah did, although Elijah was very powerful in what he did. You see, he received a double portion of the Spirit, and he did greater things even than Elijah did. You see this pattern with John the Baptist and Jesus. John the Baptist came as a prophet in the wilderness preaching the, the coming of the Son of Man. But you know what it says in John, third chapter. When, they, when his disciples come to him and they say, uh, Teacher, you know, this guy is across the river over there and, and, he, and, and he's baptizing more than you are. Well, in fact, that's a little misleading. They don't really understand. He's not baptizing. Who's baptizing? His disciples are baptized. But, they, but they, he's more popular than you are. And then John says what? He gives this analogy, this picture of the bridegroom, you know, coming. And his, his position is to attend the bridegroom coming. And then he says, I must what? Decrease and he must increase. Uh, there's coming one after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I tell you, he, I baptize you with water, but he is going to baptize you with what? The Holy Spirit. So you see in this succession there is going from one that is great to one that is greater. One that is the Elijah that goes to the Elisha. One that is John that goes to the Jesus. And then Jesus tells his disciples the same thing is going to happen to them. And the same thing is going to happen to you. And that is a mind-boggling fact. He's saying, when I leave here, you are going to do even greater things than I. Wow. That is hard to conceive. John 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. I'm leaving. I'm leaving the 12 of you and maybe 120 in the city. But the seeds that I have planted are going to bear a fruit that is far greater than I have seen in my lifetime. I'm going to be watching from heaven but you're going to do greater than 12. You're going to do greater than 120. You're going to be do greater than reading, reaching just the Jews. You're going to reach the Gentiles. You're going to do greater than what I did. You're going to reach all nations because that's what I've commissioned you to. So whatever you ask in my name, that will I do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. I'm going home, and I'm leaving you with a task and that task is to do even greater things. So what is his expectation of us? Let me close with this. His expectation is he's con he has commissioned us in the same way to be those threefold witnesses. Witnesses of his resurrection, of his ascension, and the, the testimony that he's coming back. If you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you give witness to his resurrection because the old you has been buried unto death in baptism with Jesus Christ. You have been raised to walk in a new life. You go forth to tell the power of the ascended Jesus Christ who is in heaven today making intercession for us. We don't intercede, he does. And we promise, folks, he's coming back like we did this morning. We're empowered by his Holy Spirit. And when, when that happens, when our back is against the wall, when we see the numbers in the church declining, when we see the church aging, when we see that there aren't harvesters, then we know what we do. We pray to the Lord, and the Lord will empower us. With God, nothing is impossible. And, folks, the amazing things, thing is, if we believe this, and if we pray for his will to be done and we ask for those things to be accomplished that are within his will, he will do them and we will do even what? Greater things than he did. So you, he has equipped us to do that.
Where did that come from? It didn't come from mom and dad. It didn't come from grandmother and granddaddy, although they witnessed to us. When we became Christians, we became children of God, directly joint heirs with Jesus Christ, and he empowered us with the Holy Spirit to do those very things. You know the old expression, God doesn't have grandchildren. So we are sons and daughters of God alongside our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And he has equipped us to do that. So we have a commission not only to go out and share the gospel, but then when people are redeemed and they come into the kingdom, we need to share that message with them. And we need to say, you know what? The Holy Spirit dwells in you. And the ascended Lord is looking on. And he expects you to go out and fulfill his great commission and do even greater things. That's his expectation. Our response should be this. Don't stand there what? Gazing. (laughs) Don't stand there gawking. Worship Jesus in the fullness of his glory as the disciples did, and then assume your, your post, and your post is that your witnesses, beginning where? Folks, we can give money to the Lottie Moon and Annie Armstrong and Mary Hill Davis offerings. We can, we can help to plant missions in far-flung places around the world. We can support James and Gibouillet. We can support uh, Abraham Barberi. But Jesus says the mission begins where? The mission begins in Jerusalem. And we draw a circle around us here in Jerusalem. And for us, the mission begins here. We need to be doing evangelism and outreach. And we need to be sharing the gospel with people around us. We need to be in our Jerusalem when we're in the workplace, whenever we're at school, wherever we are. We need to be witnesses of the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. And he empowers us with that powerful message. We need to be filled with joy. Because guess what? He's coming back. And if he doesn't come back before we go, he's prepared us a place. And then finally, our encouragement. He's at the right hand of God. He's watching. He empowers us. He will return, as we said. He will return with all of his saints. There are two scarlet threads that run through all of this. There's a scarlet thread of redemption, which we have been talking about. So let's tie it together. He entered the holy place once for all, and now we see the scarlet thread tied. Not through the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And he remains there at the right hand of God. Therefore, he is able to save forever for those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. You see, this is where it's all been headed. We talk about it being consummated in the resurrection, folks. It's not. It's not even consummated in the ascension. It's consummated in what he is doing in heaven today. And then there's another scarlet thread, very last thing. And that's the scarlet thread of future joy. Elijah was translated, just as surely as Elijah was translated to heaven, just as surely as Jesus was glorified and ascended to heaven, even so we will be taken up. Now, more than likely, the odds are, after 2,000 years, and I'm age 72, more than likely, the odds are that what will happen? I will die, and then this corruptible will put on incorruption. This mortal will put on immortality. Okay? And I'll be taken home to the place that he has prepared for me. And so, for you, he, he says, to be absent from the body is to be what? present with the Lord. At the same time, folks, it is just possible that sometime soon, and what does the song say? 
soon and very soon Jesus will return. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth his angels to the four corners of the earth, the four winds of the earth and the farthest parts of the earth. And he will gather his elect. First Thessalonians puts it a little differently. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who are dead. Okay, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? With a shout. And the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of the Lord will sound and the dead in Christ will rise when? First. And then those who are alive and who remain will be what? Snatched up. They will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Whether we go to meet him or whether he comes to call us, the great truth of the, of the ascension is that someday too, we will turn our face to heaven 